Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... My head was going down sort of between my own legs and my ass was going straight up in the air. I was absolutely furious because I could see what the players were doing. Now, two areas of the game you could see where their team's happy, how they defend and how they work. With the three law changes I have proposed, which, uh, which haven't been accepted, unfortunately. Welcome to the Sounds of Sports. My name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm here with uh, Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, we're about to play an interview we did with uh, Nick Mallett. Of course, Nick Mallett, the former South African Rugby Union player, played for the Springboks and uh, was, later the cap- was later the coach of the Springboks from 1997 to 2000, and was also head coach for the Italy's Rugby Union team between 2000 and 2011. He's done a lot of coaching across various different countries, not just Italy and South Africa, coached extensively in the club system in, the, in France as well, but uh, is very well known, not only as an outspoken um, analyst around rugby, but also somebody that is very principled in the way that he's handled his rugby career and his coaching career over the years. And Ross, you've, got, you've known Nick for, for many years. Uh, why have we got him on for this podcast? Yeah, I first met Nick Mallett in 2006 because I did this management degree and he came because the guy who convened that course was Nick Mallett's manager when Mallett was the Springbok coach. So they were really good friends. And I remember the first time I thought, this guy just tells unbelievable stories with such authority. I've never met anyone who owns a room as much as Nick Mallett. But his technical insights and his candor are the reason that I've wanted to speak to him for a long time. I've proposed to the local TV channel in South Africa that we do a science of rugby slot once a month where Nick acts as the coach and he gives the technical sort of stuff and we add a little bit of science. So now that we've got this podcast, I thought it would be terrific because since that meeting in 2006, Nick serves on World Rugby's Rugby Committee, which is its highest kind of executive um, decision-making body that deals with the the between-the-lines stuff, if I can call it that, the stuff in the game. And I I attend those meetings as well through my consulting. And Nick is always candid. He's always outspoken. He's sometimes controversial. He's forceful, but he always makes sense. And he's got such a wonderful clarity of explaining things. So I thought that, you know, for, for a guy who's been around the block so often and who has the technical ability plus the emotional, he'd be a fantastic person to talk to for as long as he would give us. Here's our interview with Nick Mallett. Right, one of the most respected names in uh, world rugby, former South African coach, player. And I was Nick Mallett is here at, at Sounds of Sport today. And uh, Nick... One of the things I was looking at um, when we were building up to this podcast was how many places have you coached around the world? Because it's more of a question of where you haven't coached more than we have coached. You've <laughs> yeah. coached in so many places. Yeah, funny. It's been uh, it was it was a player coach in France first, and uh, and that was for nine years at two different clubs. And then I came back and coached in South Africa, club and provincial and, and international. And then I went back to France and coached Stade Francais. And then after that, it was uh, uh, in Italy for four years. But um, I've had I've had a couple of stints uh, doing the Barbarians uh, uh, in uh, that that November yeah. test, 
And, um, and he won and, that game, didn't he? Yeah, against yeah. New Zealand. That was one of my proudest moments because uh, <laughs> if you remember back the last time the Barbarians beat uh, the All Blacks was in that, I think it was 1971 game when um, Gareth Edwards scored that try, which is uh, iconic for the Barbarians. Yeah. So that was a, a fantastic achievement um, for that team. And then I've done some consulting in, in, uh, in Japan as well, which, is, which has been fun. So the only place you haven't really coached is probably New Zealand, really, isn't it? <laughs> I've been over there. <laughs> of the major enough. nations. <clears throat> well, I've, I haven't coached teams, but I was, I've been over, uh, there's um, uh, a, <clears throat> interna it's an international coaching seminar called, run by Murray Mexted, and uh, I've been over there on two or three occasions, uh, and not to do coaching, but actually just to participate in it and and um, that was that was actually fantastic because they had when I was there they had Wayne Smith who's uh, an outstanding coach and uh, they also had uh, Hanson doing um, you know talking about attack uh, yeah. and uh, and it was uh, you know I learned a lot there I was doing a little bit on defence because they respected South Africa's defence but uh, I learned a tremendous lot from those guys just listening in on their talks on attack. So over your, the course of your life, uh, just looking at some of your biographies that people have written over the over the yeah. years about you, spent some time in Oxford. You've obviously got the bit of an Oxford accent that you've still had after. No, I hope not. I still think it is there. <laughs> um, but one, famously, one of the best stories I've heard is that you once hit three sixes of Ian Botham yeah. in a, in a match, and then yeah. the, the best part of that was that you even matched him beer for beer in the bar afterwards. Well, is that, is that, that a true story or not? Well, I, I can't remember where there were three sixes. I know that I made a quick thirty six. He was bowling. He was bowling at uh, at the park. And I was playing, I came in at about number eight and we were, we must have been 80 for six. And uh, he had everyone around the bat and it was turning square uh, because it was early in the season and there was a lot of grass on the wicket and so, and it was quite slow. So he wasn't bowling quickly, he was bowling offies. Because he, he was a medium, medium pacer, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, Beefy, medium yeah. quick and he, could, and he could really bend his back. But um, I just thought, you know, with offspin and everyone around the bat, I mean, there's, I mean, it's, uh, there was no one in the deep, so I just thought anything pitched up was going to go, and uh, and I hit, a, I middled a couple of those, and uh, <laughs> one of the funniest part of parts of that was, um, uh, just uh, um, he he got a bit angry after I think the second or third boundary, and I saw him give a nod to the wicketkeeper, um, and I just knew there was going to be a bouncer off a short run up coming up, you know, but but the keeper was a bit sleepy and he didn't spot it, you know, and he was standing up. <laughs> and so I, I moved out the way when he bowled it short, and uh, it almost took this, his keeper's head off. And I mean that that exchange of uh, pleasantries was. Uh, I'm glad there weren't any stump mics on the field at that time. He did a wonderful mm -hmm. thing actually afterwards in Botham because uh, all students, all of us were students, and went to the Vincent's Club afterwards. He put his wallet down on the bar and just said, uh, "Guys, drinks are on me tonight." And uh, I mean that's a challenge for <laughs> any student. I mean they, I was the last to leave. I can promise you that. And were you matching him? Was he one of the last to leave uh, as well? Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, yeah. He was. It was. He's larger than life. He absolutely. He absolutely loved. Um, uh, you know, just talking about his old uh, mm. stories. It was just funny enough. It was just prior to that eighty-one Headingley Test where he he batted so wonderfully well and 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 managed to, with Bob Willis managed to win a, a Test match for for England at, mm. at Headingley. And uh, famously, I think two Australians put some money on at five hundred to one on England <laughs> to win the game <laughs> and, and collected some cash. Yeah. No, he's a he's a lovely guy. I mean, and. Uh, and uh, for you know t that gesture, which is um, you know, he was obviously a, a wealthy professional cricketer, and we were all just getting by on 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 student on student fees on student uh, um, grants Stipends, really. Yeah, yeah it yeah, was uh, yeah. it was wonderful to be able to have yeah. 
yeah. a free bar. Well, we're not here to talk about cricket, obviously, yeah. because we're here to talk mostly yeah. about rugby and your experience over the many years that you've played and coached at the game is why we're talking to you here today. I know, I guess, building up to the World Cup, there's a lot of excitement around rugby yeah. and we're going to get some into some of the ideas behind it. But we're talking generally about the sport as it is now. Where do you see rugby now? Where, where has it come from in the last 10 years? Um, has the sport developed? Do you think it's going forward, backwards? Yeah. Kind of give us a bit of a praise here about the state of the game at the moment. Yeah, I think the men's sport uh, is, uh, you know, needs work because I think the amateur game retained a lot more players than the professional game has done. I think that uh, what uh, schools are still very healthy. Uh, there's, there were obviously, there have obviously been issues around the safety in the game and uh, mothers being a bit concerned about uh, their sons playing. So uh, a lot of the law changes have, have uh, been uh, have applied to those fears, um, and making sure that the, 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 their children will be safe. But as and also, so when you look at guys leaving school and going to university, they probably play a year or two out of school to have some good yeah. social rugby. When they see they're not going to get a professional contract, then the guys will stop and they'll uh, you know they'll go on to golf or cycling or something like that. So there's been a drop off in comparison to uh, years past, where guys used to play until 32 and be a member of a club, and that was the Saturday afternoon. Um, exercise and the social and networking would go in after yeah. that. But but where rugby's really made huge strides, uh, huge uh, strides, I think, is in the, the female game. I think women have, have, have really we've increasing numbers all the time, and that and that mainly because of perhaps the lack of um, of, of physicality and pace. It's a it's a skillful game um, mm. with with less risk of injury. And and then obviously into into different countries. I mean, the, it's difficult for the, it to take root there because you know you go there and you can coach a sport, but you need people there who've played it before. Yeah. Um, you know, really generating. You almost need interest. to create heroes in that environment exactly. to have people coming up into exactly. the sport. Yeah. So that's one of the big challenges for rugby is that uh, not the same ten teams always competing for yeah. the World Cup. When you have a, a, a soccer World Cup there is a possibility for an outsider to get to a semi-final yeah. and it's yeah. been done before. Whereas with rugby, it's very, very hard to see a Namibia or a Canada or a USA make a semi-final. So you're part of the IRB rugby committee and you have been for a couple of years now. Is that one of the ideas for you yeah. in that role to be able to grow the sport so more nations become more competitive? Yeah, that's exactly what <clears throat> what uh, there's a... Uh, what world rugby is um, hoping will happen, and in fact, the, the way in which uh, the uh, test schedules have been uh, have been changed has given um, tier two countries an opportunity to play at least one, uh, you know, November November test against a, a tier one country. Uh, they all they always felt that they had to play. Obviously, you want to play against sides of your own um, standard, and and uh, so the competitions that they brought, whatever it was, the Pacific Cup, or else it was uh, the European Cup, or else it was the, the United States competition, yeah. um, the Amer in the Americas, um, is good for uh, each of those nations. But just give them a chance every maybe two Test matches yeah. a year, home and away, to yeah. have an opportunity to play Scotland and Ireland. Um, you know, someone like Italy, I mean, Georgia's champing at the bit to have a go against Italy because yeah. they feel they could be very competitive against them. And I think that's that's what World Rugby is going to have to, it's a nettle they're going to have to seize, is uh, uh, the promotion relegation out of the moneyed, um, uh, very successful Six Nations competition or yeah. rugby championship. Um, you know, how are we going to you know, allow uh, uh, an upcoming maybe Germany in 20 years' time, uh, you know, take it really seriously. They start uh, producing... Um, some some really good players and they're very competitive. How are they going to break into that yeah. 
in, into that um, how money we, competition. How come we can't get these Americans to play rugby really well? well There's like a gazillion yeah. of them, yeah. but we can't get them to play rugby at a, at a high level. That, that surely they would be, if rugby can get into the American yeah. sidegast, then you, obviously you're in a good position because think, from a marketing I, I, perspective. Yeah, I think distance is a huge problem there. So you'd, you have to, you'd have to um, you know, keep it Florida, say Florida-based or California-based or New, or, uh, New York-based. Because you can't make it a national sport. The distances are too great. And also the cost of, of transporting teams is too yeah. And true. the climate. Because anything yeah. north of, say, New York, yeah. it's only usable. Seattle, to, I mean, <laughs> 280 even, days of rain. Even Denver. Yeah. You know, it would have to be a summer sport there. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's about playing rugby in England in winter, really, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it yeah. more yeah. conducive to kind of rugby? No, because it's frozen. That's oh, frozen. Half the, half the country's in ice. Yeah. Chicago would be unplayable, unless you have these indoor stadia, which yeah. they do. But anyway, costs. It's, I, think, I think the main thing is regular competition. Yeah. And so you have to have a regular competition, and that's what you get in countries like New Zealand or South Africa. Or you know, traditional rugby is that you've got your schools, you've got your clubs, and, and you've got uh, competitions that are made all the way through for guys who just miss out on professional in South Africa, their Vodacom Cup and Supersport Challenges and stuff like that, uh, which, which um, make rugby interesting. But if you're playing only in, 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 um, in America, you, you, you need 35, 40 games a year. And where are you going to get those? You know, it's going to yeah. be very difficult without a huge uh, cost and expense. It's almost like you need to create a culture really around it. Yep. And that's difficult to do. Uh, probably easier just to go Aspen, Colorado, and say that's going to be our rugby center. Yeah. And then anyone who feels like uh, leaving uh, American football, send them there, turn it into a rugby institute and, uh, and get, uh, get them to play in um, Uruguay and Argentina in competitions. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, if some, yeah. something like that. Would, would You'd be able to get a, a side performing really well very quickly if you've got a couple of New Zealand coaches over there and um, a few Samoans, Tongans. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Help, helping. Ross, I know you've got tons of questions and I, I just have to throw one question in there that I've been seeing on top of my mind before we did this podcast. I want you to describe for me, and you've played at the top level of the game, and you obviously know a lot of the players that play at that level. For those of you that don't play at the international level of rugby, what is it like being in a scrum? So yeah. if you had to describe what it's like in a Springbok scrum against the All Blacks, you're eighth man, there's a crowd at, <clears throat> in Auckland, it's noisy. Yeah. I don't want to tell you what to say here, but yeah. kind of describe what it feels like, the, the efforts, the sounds, the noises, the t- comments. What, what, what happens there? Yeah, I think, I think that is that <clears throat> sort of defines rugby, that, that scrum challenge. And thank goodness I was a number eight, which is a, you know, quite a long way away from the physical contact <laughs> with the opposition. You know, I've still got a couple of rows of, of my own players between me and them. But um, it, it, it is, a, I mean, it is a, a primeval, primeval sort of uh, contest, almost but like between two buffaloes fighting. Uh, the front rows, the, it's, uh, I've spoken to a number of guys I've coached. A, a tight head will have a period where he actually will black out sometimes. In wow. the, the pressure is such that it's a ton, uh, you know, virtually a ton against a ton. There's a, you know, a huge impact and has been a huge impact, and it's all around the head and, and, and neck area. So if you don't want to shift your space, you just have to hang in there. And sometimes you know, you know those bright sparks, they see bright sparks and then black and then just black. Because even even in the for, game today with, with yeah. the control and the... Well, it can go on for 20 seconds if a team is trying to double shove a scrum. And, uh, and, and you know, the pressure on not moving your feet uh, and, and keeping in that one spot when you're, when you're under all that pressure is absolutely immense. I'll tell a, a quick story about playing. I played against, I was captaining Oxford and, and we were playing against Oxford Town in a pre-season friendly. And in those days, you only had two replacements and it was a scrum off and a hooker. 
And uh, our prop went off. He had a bad knee injury, and he was a tight head prop. And uh, the hooker was a, a small guy. He was a he was a guy who was more an athletic sort of a flanker than he was a, a scrummager. So I looked around. Everyone was looking at their boots, you know. And I knew, yeah, <laughs> captain, you better step up here and, and go in and play play prop, you know. So I took a look at the opposition. He was a loose head, bearded guy of about five foot ten and about four foot square, you know. And uh, he was about thirty five. And, uh, you know, I said to him, listen, I haven't played here before. So, um, you know, listen, let's keep it friendly. And um, the first the first scrum, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. I mean, I went in um, <clears throat> and because I'm quite tall, you know, my, my, my legs were quite long and I didn't get them far enough back. And then my lock was pushing really hard. So he was pushing me forward. <laughs> my head was going down sort of between my own legs and my ass was going straight up in the air. It was the most horrendous feeling I've ever had in my life. In fact, I, when I came to ground, I could hardly breathe. I felt as though I'd broken about four ribs. I grabbed him by the throat and I said, if you ever do that to me again, you won't finish this game. Who, your own teammate? No, no, the opposition. <laughs> Not the I, lock he was showing no, you from no, the no, other side. No, I attacked this prop who I, who I knew could, he would, uh, you know, he would do some serious damage to me if I stayed on in that position. And then we came to some agreement that... Uh, if he didn't kill me in the next scrum, I would bloody, I would kill him because uh, it was just uh, just something I was never going to go through again. And of course, I played a lot of sevens where you're just three against three, yeah. and that is, I mean, that's hard. You know, you wake up for two days, you can't lift your, your chin off your chest. You know, because really? your neck, okay. oh, your neck. Because you always look at those sevens scrums and you feel like they're <coughs> almost like the fairy version of the yeah. main scrum. No, they are, yeah. but but even so, I guarantee you that those guys playing prop have worked a lot on their neck and shoulders. Because it's a muscles that you just never use in, in normal life otherwise. And, yeah. uh, and uh, it is an area of the game that, um, where you can really get, get hold of your opponent and, and, and dominate. And, uh, and that's why uh, World Rugby is very, uh, very keen not to depower the scrum because then it'll move too, too closely towards rugby league. Yeah, well, just that, on that, like, yeah, right. that, this situation now <coughs> couldn't happen anymore because if a player... Yeah. If a, if a prop goes off and there's no one to replace him who is qualified, then yeah. they go straight to uncontested scrums Quite because right. of the oh, no, no. because of the mallet scenario <laughs> that we just heard about yeah. and folded in half yeah. like a piece of paper. Yeah, it was like a hairpin. I mean, it, <laughs> so of all the players on the field, I mean, there's obviously each individual position has its own pressures and yeah. and, and skills, but the hard guys are the guys in that front row, really, aren't they? There's I mean, no they, doubt about that. In fact, in fact, it's a completely different game. You can imagine that those guys, I mean, in a, in a scrum, probably there are fewer scrums today than they were when I played, probably 30-odd scrums. Now I'd say they'd be down to, you know, 10, 15 scrums. And in some New Zealand game, I think there was one Super Rugby game where the first scrum was in the 60th minute. So um, because it's either a penalty or else play advantage. And uh, and so uh, the... the um, the, the scrum, fewer scrums, but it is it is really it, it, ninety seconds of of your time is spent in ensuring that your team doesn't go backwards as a tight yeah. head prop. When you wake up, the ball is forty yards away, you know yeah. it's gone. So then you've got to actually jog back into a, into a position where you know after three rucks it might come back to you because you can never keep up with play if, uh, if yeah. you come. And out is of there a lot? Is there a lot of talking happening in there? A lot of. Uh Sledging and cricket yeah, terms. there was again. I'll tell a lovely story. I was playing. We were playing Stade Francais. We were playing against Toulouse, and we were down playing a semi-final. And I said to the, my front row, it was a very good front row. Marconet, Sylvain Marconet played for France, and Peter de Villiers, who also played for France, a South African. And uh, they had a brilliant backline. I said, listen, we've got to we've got to attack their scrum to ensure they get really poor ball for the backs, and that'll give us you know keep us in the game. And uh, Sylvain Marconet <laughs> got his tight end, the Toulouse tight end. 
and uh, we we he really caught him and he was up off the ground his feet was off, were off the ground and and he was, and we were advancing 10 meters the scrum was going 10 meters yeah. and he said in french uh, would you like me to drop you off at which station <laughs> <laughs> Chief Ferguson to depose a kill station. He said, I tell you, I thought that was very So there is, there is sledging in rugby <laughs> yeah, as much as there is in cricket. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think that guy found it very funny, but I yeah. thought it was a great chip. More generally speaking, obviously, we're talking about the scrum being such a attritional, yeah. unusual place, but the whole game is like that. Yeah. So when you're standing in a change room before a test match, do you sense any fear in your players? No. The rugby players afraid yeah, I, I i honestly don't think so i think they're up for the challenge the the big the nerves that you have are not letting your side down not mm. letting your team down not letting your supporters down you know you've prepared for this uh, you're up against a, a team that you respect if, you, if you're playing in big test match rugby and uh, what you see is you see you know i really don't want to let anyone down today and so it's those sort of nerves not nerves uh, in my view it was never nerves about themselves and physical damage that they might get when they went onto the field those you know injuries are part and parcel of the game and 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 they're pretty phlegmatic about it players you know if they turn an ankle or have a knee injury then it goes, you know, statistically they know that there'll be one sort of six-week injury that they'll have every year if they play 36 to 40 games a year. So yeah. uh, you don't see the nerves, as I said, aren't, um, aren't, uh, aren't they're not fear. They are just uh, a worry that uh, they're going to let themselves. Or, or the, the reason why I ask a good question is I remember we were chatting to Gary Kirsten <laughs> well, exactly, one of our previous yeah. pod. We were Same saying... Thing. What is it like to stand up and we're going up as the opening batsman? You see, coming yeah. a guy like Brett Lee coming in at full pace. Yeah. What goes through your mind? He says fear, no, that's and a, that's why I'm surprised to hear. Yeah. Surely, when you're on no, the field, you've got even Itzbeth coming at you. There's, there's, a, there's a, an element of Kirsten fear. Kirsten said fear, and he said fear of what? He said fear of failure, yes, not being true. hit yeah, by the ball. True. So it's actually exactly the same thing. Yeah. The, player, yeah. the fear of failing and losing face or much just losing matches is much, much more powerful than fear of injury yeah. or pain. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, so, and also, I think there is an individual element of of, of uh, cricket, especially as a batsman, uh, which you don't have in rugby. You know, you mm. you, you uh, in in rugby, you've always got a mate very close to you, and uh, and so you're on defence and on attack. Uh, it's a it's a collective thing that you're trying to do, and that's why I think it's it's very strong the feeling that you don't want to let your mate down. That's that's the most powerful. Uh, feeling before going out onto the field is I'm going to make my tackles. You know, I'm going to make sure I'm up in the right position at the right time to support or help uh, uh, because uh, we've got to do that in order to beat this other side. And that's what you're worried about and if you fail in that uh, department. I mean, when you look at the, the, the impacts of players, I often imagine myself if I was in that position going headlong into a scrum and or going into a mall headlong. Yeah. You're going with your most sensitive yeah. part of your body. Is there a certain kind of person that becomes a, a world-class rugby player i mean is there a when you look at them yeah. compared to the average population do they have something special is there a, a fearlessness that exists i think i think you actually have to park off um, reason you know when you go onto a rugby field because you wouldn't rationally run hard into a in, into someone uh, uh, you know in real life and they're running as hard as they can into you and you put your head and shoulders first and they're putting their hip and shoulder into you so um, you, you, that's part and parcel of the game, but it's something that you've developed in your, that you enjoy. Boys like, uh, you know, watch a boy when he's three, four years old, he's picking a stick up and he's hitting the ground and he's having a fight and, yep. you know, girls will be doing different things. And so inside every boy is this uh, sort of contest, this 
this enjoyment of a, a fight. And uh, rugby gives that gives that release. And I think uh, the more competitive you are, and the more uh, I think courageous. But courage is a strange thing because um, often the most courageous people have the, 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 the least imagination. Because if you sit there thinking, geez, I wonder what's going to happen if I do run into yeah. Etzabeth, uh, you know, I might break my neck, and then you might not do it. But if you just say, I'm going to smash Etzabeth today, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm capable of doing that, you know, then, uh, then you'll do it. And, uh, and so the argument is, is that uh, intelligence or is it a lack of intelligence? <laughs> so, you know, one so wonders. If you're going to be dumb, you've got to be tough. Yeah. Um, who's the most courageous player you coached? I think uh, I think there's a who stands out as yeah. the guys who like you would take to battle with. Oh well, Henry Honeyball, without any doubt, in the time that I was coaching, he was the fly off uh, for the Sharks and also for South Africa. He was my first choice player. He was the the most devastating defensive fly off the world's ever seen, and I don't think they've ever seen anyone better than that. He was about six foot two, ninety odd kilos, ninety two kilos, and. Um, was was like a bit of dry biltong, you know, just bones and muscle, yeah. and he would cut people down. His nickname was Lem, you know, Le the Lemington Blade, because he used to just cut people down. And he yeah. was a unbelievably courageous guy. I mean, I remember him playing a game where after every tackle, he'd swing his arm, he'd have to get his left arm and throw it up in the air to swing it because he had a bit of nerve damage. And it used to go numb, and he couldn't lift his right arm up. And playing fly off, you've obviously got to be able to move your hands around. So you'd get his with his left arm, he, like a like a propeller. You'd have to get that shoulder going, and that would loosen up the muscles and the nerve. Incredible! Like he was unbelievably courageous. Wow. Ross, tell us about the World Cup rugby. How to make up a team? I think we would. This is one of the things we were discussing discussing here. Not necessarily World yeah. Cup, but when you look at the makeup of a of a world class team. It's not always the best players in every right. position. It's mm -hmm. a makeup of a total team. I think. What's the process of deciding on that team and that squad when you're building towards a World Cup like we're having? Yeah, I think the most important thing is the leadership. You've got to get uh, in key positions. But first of all, your captain has to be uh, someone that the team respects and someone that you have a very good relationship with. As a coach, you're dealing with him on a daily basis. And, and uh, the way in which... Because now it's a mutual decision nowadays. You don't go... The coach doesn't go and... And autocratically say this is how you will play. It's in it's in discussions with the players and the leaders. And one looks at the fullback as being a leader. The fly-off will be a leader, uh, probably the outside centre in terms of the of the first phase defence. Uh, your number eight, your hooker, and obviously the guy calling your lineouts. So um, you're one of your lock forwards probably. So the, all of those guys need to be consulted in the way in which you want to you want to play the game and there's got to be agreement. So <clears throat> it's a much more democratic process now than it used to be. And I think coaching has moved away from coaches telling players what to do and much more players studying the opponents and coming up to the coaches and saying, this is what we, th we think we should be doing. This is our, this is against their line out attack. We're going to try this defensive alignment and on, because of their defensive alignments, these are the, the line out, um, yeah. um, uh, uh, tactics we're going to use today and um and i think that that is is much more powerful because of course the players are the ones on the field uh, making all the decisions so if they've taken part in the decisions prior to the game they're going to so good the coach knows what what you would like them to do and the players don't you want the players to know 
It's interesting you say that. Was that a paradigm shift that happened at some point, or was this just evolution? Funny, I mean, when did it change? In in in, in amateur days, <clears throat> that was how we used to play. In amateur days, the guys used to get together. Often your coach would be a manager. You know, you'd have one coach. You wouldn't be a forwards coach and a skills coach and a backline coach and a, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a kicking coach. We didn't. We just had one coach, and you had a manager. You do the administrative stuff. So he obviously can't. That coach wouldn't be able to be a. Uh, um, uh, you know, know exactly about tight end play if the guy was a flyer, for example. So the, the team itself would do a lot of discussion. And in those, uh, when I was playing for Western Province uh, in, in the 1980s, every single guy in the team had a, a university degree. Uh, so the guy had gone to university. So they were bright. We had uh, three doctors. We had uh, two accountants. The guys were bright guys. So you, you'd sit there and work out moves on the back of an envelope on a plane going up and saying, what about this? Let's try this this weekend. And where the big shift came was when rugby became professional and then they said, okay, well, we better get more professional with our coaches. And suddenly you had a set-piece coach, an attack coach, and a defense coach. And then they were they would dictate to the teams uh, as to how they should play. And I think that was probably in the 2000s, early 2000s, in late 1990s, 2000s. And then I think the All Blacks have led the way in um, collaborative coaching where yeah. they would say, uh, you know, uh, to Whitelock, come up with uh, your strategy against the Springboks this weekend. Yeah, so just on that, I'm looking here at a paper from a scientific journal called The Sports Psychologist 2014, and it's called A Case Study of Excellence in Elite Sport, Motivational Climate in a World Champion Team, and it's written by a psychologist called Ken Hodge, but the other two authors are Graham Henry and Wayne Smith. So mm. this is, Graham Henry, for those not in the know, was the coach at New Zealand in 2007 and 11 when they won the World Cup, um, and Wayne Smith... Nick mentioned his name a few minutes minutes ago. So this was a paper they wrote about the All Black mindset and the coaching philosophy. And what Nick said, just like it's, it's almost word for word. Smith outlined how the coaching group wanted players to be more accountable rather than sitting back and letting everyone else do it. And then he uses these words. We wanted players who could problem solve because the players have to make decisions on the field. So if you believe that problem solving is important, then you've got to create that off the field. For example, doing analysis on the opposition. So that's exactly yep. what you're saying now, exactly. is that you've actually tasked the players with coming up with a, uh, yeah, a strategy. I, yeah, I, I coached with him in that game. It was probably one of the reasons, main reasons we beat the All Blacks uh, was, uh, was Wayne Smith uh, and I coached a Southern Hemisphere. It was actually, this was a different game, in fact. It was a Southern Hemisphere bar uh, Barbarians against the Northern Hemisphere Barbarians. And we coached together and he was the most fantastic guy to work with. And uh, we really saw rugby the same way. Um, on one of those trips to New Zealand, he was doing an attacking uh, um, an attacking move with a team. And the way in which he coached it was he would get the team. There were five uh, options that the fly-off could take. He could either play the blindside wing on his shoulder or he could play a guy on a dummy switch or he could do a flat cross kick or he could chip or he could uh, do a skip pass. And then he would stand behind the attacking team and hold up colors which were which would signify different defensive alignments from the opposition and um, and then and so the attack wouldn't know how the opposition was going to defend and the same move would be done and then he would ask the fly off what he had heard from the people outside him because he wanted his outside center to look at the defensive structure of the team coming up and then give information to the 10 to make the right decision whether it was a cross kick whether it was a chip mm -hmm. whether it was to play a guy on his shoulder and uh, he he repeated this they do I mean, that move they must have done for half an hour. They didn't change the move. But as I said, there were five options that the that, that Flyoff could take. 
And by the end of the practice, he would say, uh, what did you hear? And the guy would say the outside center was calling the, the X, which would be the cross kick. And so he said, um, and so and so he said, did you see that they were in tackling? And he said, no, but I trusted his opinion. So yeah. he was he's coaching all the time, uh, giving the opportunities for the players to communicate to each other, depending on how the opposition defend. And I think that's the key to uh, uh, well well organized decision making on the field. Well, one of the interesting things, though, in that, in that respect, is that you, you can't have too many chiefs on the field. So when it comes to choosing leaders within the team. What do those leaders do and how do you choose them? What are the sort of criteria for a captain, a forwards captain, a leader within yeah. the field? Because there is a hierarchy. Well, uh, yeah, I, th I think that what the captain is, is a guy who deals directly with the referee. And I think his relationship with that referee is very, very important because uh, we've seen referees turn around and say, uh, get back 10, you, you know, you're virtually irritating me. And you get other captains who the referee is prepared to listen to. And, uh, and the more that that captain has the respect of the referee, the greater chance you're going to have of getting a good outcome from that referee's decision in the future. So that I think that the, his relationship with his coach and his relationship with the referee and his relationship with his players, the captain, that, that's the key part of his, uh, of his responsibility. But in the team, you have many decision makers. Your 10, for example, is, it drives the bus. You know, he's the mm. one who decides whether we're going to, you know, whether the scrum off is going to box kick it, whether he's going to be, you know, playing a guy short, taking it flat, whether he's going to be, you know, passing it to the outside center, who's going to grub her, whether he's going to do a flat cross kick, whether he's going to take it to the line, whether he's going to call the forwards up. I mean, there's so much information that the 10 has to give the rest of the team and the information he gives has to be provided by the people on the outside because they're the ones who see where the space is. A 10 is watching the nine all the time because he's got, he, he can glance up to see, uh, you know, a little bit in front of him, but his concentration must be on the, on the nine because of the timing of, of the nine's pass. So if, he's, if he has to spend 90% of his time watching the nine, he can't see out of the, out of the, out of the corner of his eye what's happening at second center, outside center, or for that matter, in the um, uh, you know behind that uh, defensive line, yeah. and so that information is absolutely vital against him. So, if you if you provide a conduit of of intelligent information, then you, then it helps your leaders. And so the tens a leader, the hooker's a leader, the lock is a leader. The lock will be calling the line out. The hooker has to throw it to where you want. The hooker is the one who yeah. organizes the scrum going in. So there's there are leaders all through the field. So there's sort of macro not, and micro yeah. decisions throughout the game yeah. at different levels of the game. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, South Africa against England, for for example, last year, missed four line-out throws on England's line for a driving more. Now, I mean, clearly there was a breakdown there. I mean, it wasn't the captain's fault, but they were, the guy calling the line-out and the person throwing the ball in, I mean, there was a disconnect between the two of them because it's, you cannot lose four line-outs when you've kicked for the corner and you're going for a driving more try. I mean, I mean, clearly there's a, there's a real issue. There must have been some so, frustration in yeah, that team. Wow. I know, there yeah. must have been. Yeah. Yeah. Russ? Um, no, and I don't specifically have anything to add to that one. Um, I suppose in the context of the World Cup, when we talk about leadership and keeping a team together, this World Cup starts on Friday and it will run for six weeks. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How big is the challenge to a coach of keeping a team together in a foreign country for seven, six, seven weeks yeah. when you've got these strong personalities cabin fever yeah issues around being away from family and familiar things and so on so I off think, the field leadership is i guess what yeah. i'm getting at now yeah i think the, i think obviously young men i mean they need downtime they really badly need downtime they're quite quite happy to focus and and get themselves ready for a game like this new zealand game there's going to be no problem for south africa against new zealand this weekend i mean they'll have been thinking about this for the last six months so there's going to be no sort of um uh, you know, um, lack of focus going into this weekend, but but there is going to be a difficulty with the game before Namibia, the game before Canada, because there's going to be a reserve, uh, a sort of the B team playing. So what do you do with your A team? And I think I think it'll be really wise um, because they've been away for a rugby championship as well. They've had a preseason training. We've had the friendly against Japan. Uh, and now there's another seven weeks to go. I mean, that, that that's that's a long three months that the guys are being. So I would say, uh, Rassi would probably, or the coach would have probably said, there's a there's a three day window here. So from the Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, these uh, uh, fifteen uh, players can leave the camp and they can go on a on a on a on a break, and we'll see you back here on Thursday. So the twenty three who are playing uh, the, the game will have to stay, but the other guys can go. And I think if you do that also with the reserve side and say to them, listen, the guys not involved, the twenty three against Italy, you guys can have uh, fifteen, uh, you know, five days, four five days off. It's gonna it's gonna really pay in the long run. But once you get to a quarterfinal. Listen, it's their job, you know. The guys have to understand that you can't start worrying about um, downtime and I'm bored and all that sort of thing. You've got to you, you've got to really concentrate on winning a quarterfinal, semifinal, and a final, and it's very, very difficult. So, <clears throat> so I don't think there'll be a lack of concentration in those and, final stages. And what about you as the coach? Because it's all good and well we speak about the players. How did you <laughs> escape that bubble? Because all yeah. the coaches I've known are obsessive people. Yeah, you don't. You That's don't all you think about from breakfast exactly. till dinner, and then yeah. you dream about it. How yeah. do you ever step away no, from you don't. that bubble? No, you don't. That's the that's the only way you can step away from it is if there's no game the following Saturday. So, so it, but because if you're a, a rugby coach, is is you thinking all that? First of all, you've got um, you've got your players to worry about. You've got not only the players you're starting, but you've got the players you're not in the team, and you've got to talk to them, make sure that they aren't going to cause a, a you know. A, a problem in the side because they are upset about not playing. Your assistant coaches, I mean, just by its very nature, the, the the relationship between the defense coach and the attack coach, they are they work against each other because one guy is a risk taker to create opportunities. The other one is, is you know, says I'm taking no risks because stats, stats will tell you that if you kick the ball, you don't concede tries. So uh, if you kick the ball accurately. So they're arguing against each other. You've got to make sure that's all okay. You've got admin guys worried about the food we're getting. You've got press who want a story every single day. You've got owners or you've got your 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 uh, uh, rugby administrators who want to be kept in the loop as to what's going on and why is this guy playing and why isn't that guy playing. Ministers of sport who decide to come in and have a little chat as well. So you, as a head coach, you are, but you are. There isn't a single second, waking second, that you're not thinking about the job. So that is why I say the only time you have downtime is when the last game is played and there's a break between seasons or or uh, between test matches. We've talked a little bit about the effect of modern 
technology on sport in previous podcasts and how that affects performances yeah. in events like cycling and, and running and that sort of thing. Do you see that impact happening in, in rugby with oh, people on already. social media all the time? Uh, it, has, it, has, it has already. Just from, I mean, the tech, technological advancement in terms of how you can analyze opponents, and it's almost too much because, uh, because if I ask my defense coach and my attack coach, they're incredible, uh, hard, incredibly hard workers. And then you want to sit down with um, the 23 guys who are going to be playing and you sit down with each individual guy after his game and say, listen, here's your defensive errors, here were your uh, good decisions on attack. Why didn't you get off the ground quickly enough to support this player? I mean, you can sit for half an hour on yeah. attack and a half an hour on defense, but you can't give a guy one and a half hours because there, isn't, there, there are not enough hours in the day for 23 players. So yeah. it's about cutting it down and, and making sure that you're giving them vital information that, that, uh, that is going to help them improve or help the team improve. Because each individual, if they can incrementally improve by 5%, then you're going to be a much, much better team if you all manage to improve by 5%. There's always the risk of analysis paralysis. <laughs> there is. So, and yeah. that's what a guy like, uh, I think, Clive Woodward got wrong over that time when people were telling players what to do. He went on a tour and I spoke to um, uh, Johnson, Martin Johnson, who just said, I mean, you know, the players would fall asleep after 20 minutes. The guys just yeah. couldn't concentrate longer than 20 minutes. So yeah. you have to, what you have to say, has to be done in a short period of time and and it's impactful so that they can walk away and say, okay, I've got that. I've so seen that. I mean, I remember with teams, there was great momentum. The team's playing really well. And then for some reason, coaches feel now's the time to do more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they actually, they actually dial the, I don't know what you call it, the arousal level the wrong yeah. way yeah. because yeah. they try and then impart too much. And I remember thinking, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but I remember thinking 15 minutes, Three to four key messages is probably the capacity for a player because I mm. always got the impression players were like buckets and if you put another cup of water in and it was already full, yeah. the previous one would just spill out the other side. <clears throat> Very true. That's really true. And, and again, I always like referring to stories to, to back this up. I mean, John Smith and, and Jake White, Jake White after they hadn't played particularly well against uh, Fiji, uh, he, you know, he decided to give them a sort of like a, a fitness and a punishment session on the Monday. And John Smith just stopped after 15 minutes and says, what are you doing? You know, and he says, well, we've got, we've got a semi-final to win. And John Smith apparently said to Jake White, and uh, which Jake White was, was, uh, has admitted afterwards, he said, listen, we've, we've worked for, for three years to win this World Cup. I mean, we're not going to get fitter in one day or do another you know, tackling session or yeah. smash us in one day. Just leave, leave us alone and we're going to manage to win this. And, so, and that was a good lesson, uh, I think, both for Jake and for coaches, that, you, that don't, because you're feeling the pressure, transfer that pressure onto the team. Because, I mean, I guess to some extent sport of any kind is, is, is much instinctive because there is a natural instinctive play after years and years of play that you've got to allow so that players don't feel that they have to, oh, if I do this, it's not what the coach told me to yeah. do. So yeah. how do you balance that with the players? Well, that is, that is the, the word balance is such a good one because that's exactly what you have to do. You've got to have time. Uh, downtime because the players can easily take downtime a, a coach doesn't because you're thinking and thinking and thinking because of your responsibilities but a player's a young guy you know from 20 to 30 and he's got all sorts of other things he's thinking about so he the moment that he's not on the practice field he doesn't spend his time thinking about uh, you know how am I going to defend against Sonny Bill Williams he just he's going to defend against that guy he's thinking about other things what movie am I going to see what's yeah. my girlfriend doing at the moment so mm -hmm. so the uh, so that you've got to have that the player has to have that downtime and you've got to try and get the balance right not to lackadaisical um, and you've got to have be properly structured and, and it comes from both sides because the coaches want to give as much as they can 
uh, but the players have to concentrate as hard as they can in the time that you give them. And, uh, and, uh, and then you as a coach, you've got to walk away and leave the player alone in his downtime. Because yeah. uh, if you're keeping on going at players, even in their downtime, then they say, you know, then they get frustrated. So it is that balance is, is very difficult. And some, and some players, it might not be a rugby thing. It might be a personal factor. It might be an issue with a marriage or it might be an issue with a parent dying or something. You've got to know all about that and how you can pick some guy up or help him or have a word or have a coffee. You've got to know all about that. So it's, it's a psychologist as well as a technician, I think. There's an interesting story on that. I remember with the team that the person who would be most likely to discover those personal things was the physio. Yeah. Because the player would be sort of vulnerable and relaxed because they're on the bed getting yeah. a massage or a rub down and they would open up to the physiotherapist. And when you understood that, then you would realize that when you employ your physio, you don't necessarily need the best technical guy. Mm. You need the best human person. Yeah. And so the skill set that you look for from sometimes... The staff is not what you'd think. You don't yeah. look for the guy who does the best. Because the difference between the best physio and the, and the average physio is not that large mm. technically. But as human beings, in your culture, they might be worlds apart. And so you say the actual value of the physio, and I don't mean to disparage what they do, but yeah. the actual value of a physio on the road traveling is the player will tell him, my girlfriend's just sent mm. me a message that she doesn't want to go out with me anymore, and I saw it on Facebook or something. Yeah. And that's why the player wasn't performing. Well, we, we're about to launch a podcast in the next couple of weeks with Clint Reedhead. He's obviously the chief medical officer for yes. South African rugby. And he's one of those guys. I mean, when you talk about physios, they have a great relationship yeah. with everybody around them. He's one of those guys, yes. really gentle, kind yeah. of almost mothering type yeah. of guy, isn't he? Well, it's, it, it's, uh, it, so, so that relationship between the, between the medical staff, because I'll also add, you know, you have the, the physio, you have the masseur, you also have the doctor. If they've, got, uh, if they've got the trust of the players, the players will talk to them about anything. And what's important is the players have got to know that that medical staff won't tell the coach everything. Yeah. He's got to filter what he thinks is valuable and then only tell the coach. Uh, because if the player realizes that everything he says goes back to the coach, then he's going to stop talking to those guys, yeah. uh, particularly if there's areas of criticism. So what, what, uh, what, what the player's got to know is that he trusts these guys that if there's a real issue, a real problem, and that player can't go directly to the coach with it, that uh, if he mentions it to the medical staff, that will get back to the coach and that coach will do something about it. So... Uh, the, the filtering system is very important from that uh, from that uh, uh, physio and, and, and masseur or doctor yeah. as well. So we're talking a lot about the, the role of coaches here. One of the things I've always been fascinated about is that half-time chat. Yeah. Well, uh, could you do one for us? You know, I, I used to. I mean, mine, mine used to be fire and brimstone a lot, you know, and my assistant coaches would sit in a corner, of, you know, just... Was uh, there a lot of swearing? Plenty, plenty, plenty. No, no, no. Listen, it's, a, it's an army, um, all-male environment. So, And I, I was at a boarding school from five years old, so I've got two different languages. I've got a boy's language, which is a hell of a lot of swear words involved, and then there's a television language or a podcast language where you actually try not to swear. So... But if we you, can swear if, in this podcast. If you're yeah, emotional, we've done it before. Yeah, yeah. It, but but if you're really emotional, and uh, <clears throat> and there've been times when I've coached teams and I've come in and I've just felt, you know, the effort level's not there because I, I, I didn't ever criticize too much a drop pass or a, because that can happen. That's execution, but you can you can definitely criticize effort levels and. Um, and I'd have a full go. So I did it with Boulant. When I coached Boulant, I did it with Stade Francais, and I used to do it with, with the Springboks. But funny enough, with Italy, I didn't because um, I, you, you, move, you move on and you develop and you realize the players are actually wanting 
more than that. They know themselves they haven't performed particularly well, and they know now, listen, where what areas must we improve on? So we we had a very, very structured 10 minutes in the change room with the players, I and mean, we'd have two minutes, which was medical team time. Any They'd just sit down, the medical team would run around each player, just making sure that there was no issue with any of the players. Then the attack coach would have two minutes. Then the uh, defense coach would have two minutes. Uh, then the forwards and backs would separate and um, uh, they'd have a chat amongst themselves and probably the head coach would have a final, you know, not even a minute, you know, just 30 seconds, just, uh, you know, focus on one or two areas. So so it wasn't, uh, it's not like a big halftime talk where the guy's eyes go big and they and they go out and, and, and it changes the whole way in which they play. Um, that that's that's that doesn't happen. But anymore. it's not a tactical discussion. You're not sitting there like we see in American football movies where you yeah, put yeah. a big whiteboard. Yeah, very that's much what the so. forward and the back. No, no, that's exactly what's, what's happening. happening. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. So your set piece coach will be there with your lineout guy, and he will say, "Listen, they've thrown four balls to the six jumper, and he's moving. He's up and down that lineout, and it always goes to him." So you know, we've got our two blocks. Why don't we just set a block on that guy? Wherever he moves, we make sure we have a block. So you'll get that sort of information being passed between the set piece coach and your lineout caller, your defensive lineout alignment. In the scrums, the front row will be having a chat with the reserve front rows who are probably coming on in 10 yeah. minutes' time, just about issues that they've had. Your fly-offs looking for space, wondering, asking your centers, you know, have you seen anything? Are they coming out of line? Are they changing uh, their their defensive pattern, you know, in their half as opposed to not. So there's a lot of technical stuff being spoken about in that change room. In fact, in fact, ten minutes is very short. I was going to say, I mean, how much difference does it make getting technical in that situation? Because do the players actually remember that stuff when they've only got ten minutes and well, they're in the height of that battle? We, at the early part of this podcast, we spoke about the, the leaders. So you'd be talking to a hooker about his scrummaging. Mm. You'd talk about the lineout organizer about his throws, calls, and also the opposition calls, so that he can organize the defense and and our attack better. Your fly off. You're talking about um, uh, defense patterns of the opponents. And, uh, and your outside center and your outside wingers are talking about space, where the space is. Because either the space is in front of you or else it's behind them. And, you know, if, yeah. they, the, if they press defending, it's behind. If they shift defending, it's in front of you. So, you know, all that sort of information should be passed amongst the players and their relevant coaches. And that whole sort of fire and brimstone shouting and stuff, um, you know, that, that is virtually a thing of the past, I think. Well, so, so two questions on that. So <coughs> if, it's, if the fire and brimstone phase is over now yeah. is there for you like a, a way of dealing with different different players within that team so do some players need to be told like you need to oh, yeah. back up your ideas and other players like it's okay you know you don't have a good half yeah there's almost a sort of slightly more empathetic version oh, of that. that absolutely you have to be uh, you have to understand each player as his personality and mm. some players would respond uh, to criticism and other players would respond to praise now, we always say that humans respond to praise far more than to criticism. Yeah. But some guys you praise, the guy said, I oh, know I'm good. You don't have to tell me I'm good. I am good. And then you'd go off the boil. You know, there'd be a hooker. We had James Dalton. If I had to say to him, you're playing, you're playing an outstanding game, the guy would say, oh, well, you know, the second half, I promise you, he'd be giving away four penalties because he thinks he has a right yeah. to do that. And uh, so I used to I used to say to him every single time, you know, I say, if you give away another penalty, I'm taking off the field. You know? So, you know, I'd, I'd threaten him like a staffy, you know, and then you get another bloke. Uh, you get another How do you do with Bucky's Berta, for instance? Well, no, there you've just got to point him in the right direction. I mean, it's so easy. I mean, that guy, he said, they're the opposition, they're wearing red, you know. <laughs> have you, have and you, sort them out. You know? Have you ever regretted um, losing your cool in an emotional space at halftime with the players? And I shouldn't maybe have gone Funny that far. That, uh, I, you know, that, 
I, I regretted the, the very first time they put an audio uh, into, a, into a change room. I forgot <laughs> about it. So it was, uh, we, we were down 23-5 against the All Blacks at, in Durban. And I walked in. We still had, a, had the 1998. And we still had the um, game against Australia to play the following weekend. And that was going to be the decider. And I knew the players were holding back a bit because uh, they, they didn't want to get injured. They wanted to play the following weekend because that, that was going to be to win yeah. the, um, the Tri-Nations in those days. And, uh, and, I, and I walked in there completely forgetting that we'd agreed that they could have a sound thing. And, and uh, How are you feeling then? Just tell us oh, no, how no, you no, feel. I was You're furious. emotional. I was absolutely furious because I could see what the players were doing. I could understand that even though we'd spoken about it, that this was absolutely crucial, this game, because you, you know, you, you've got to win because momentum, if you take momentum into the winning, into the final game, you're in a much better space than if you've lost by 15 points going into that final game against Australia. And I really wanted us to perform. And the whole week, the guys had been a bit casual, you know. So I knew that uh, that no matter what I'd said during the week hadn't made an impact on the players, and I was absolutely livid. So I walked in at halftime, and I just said, I mean, I started <laughs> having a go about uh, about the team not being the same. I said, I'll, I'll repick the team. I had some very good reserves, and I said, if you think you're carrying on playing like that, you're going to play against Australia next weekend. I can assure you, you're effing well not going to be picking <laughs> playing next weekend. And uh, and uh, uh, Supersport, I think they had to turn off that that sound. Uh, that that sound microphone very very quickly as I walked in that front. Door. But the thing was that was the biggest turn, turn the biggest comeback in the history of uh, of of uh, South African rugby and in the history of New Zealand rugby. They've never led by twenty points and, and lost the game. What was the final score? 24-23, and we scored three tries in the last fifteen minutes. Yeah. So that was. I mean, I'm, I'm. I think you know there were guys who were leaving the stadium, and yeah. uh, it was Kings Park in those days, and they went. They used to bry outside, and the guys were. And they heard this roar and they said, oh, well, maybe we've got one back. And they were trying to get back into the stadium by the time the, the third roar came because uh, the guys did perform really well in the last. It was the time of those impact subs, you know, and we had some, took, got five subs onto the field, told them never to kick a ball, just attack everything. And two things happened. remember who day. they were? The subs, yeah, I remember the very, very well. There was Andrew Aitken, open side flanker. There was Bob Skinstead at number eight. There was Franco Smith at center. And um, uh, Oli LaRue came on at Lucid Prop and uh, Andre Fenter moved to lock. <laughs> so I remember very clearly. So I know like to many listeners, these names won't mean all that, all that much. But I ask because so Nick and I see each other occasionally socially, even on the weekend. And what always <laughs> strikes me about you is that you know to the minute when things happened 20 years ago. Oh, but if you've been coaching. It's amazing. I mean, that is, that's been burnt into your memory, yeah. you know, that uh, what, what's happened. I can remember tries we've scored in almost every test match that we with the Springboks played. And, and similarly, tries we conceded with Italy. You know, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> they both hurt. It is well, quite a remarkable thing. Right. And I've seen it with a few athletes and coaches where they, they have these photographic, I don't know if you have a photographic mm. memory outside of rugby. No, no, I definitely don't. I, I definitely that, don't. I concentrate so much yeah. on the game, and I understand. You're so immersed that yeah. you just cannot forget. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's very, very true. It's interesting. Best coach in rugby now, world <laughs> rugby. Who, um, would you, who would you rate? Yeah, I think Joe Joe Schmidt is a very, very good coach. Obviously, Hanson, outstanding. If you think of his career, yeah, on the sidekick to uh, to Graham Henry when they won in 2011, winning in 2015, got a good chance to win again now, 2019. I think Wayne Smith is is uh, technically the best coach I've ever worked with, but um, he didn't like the head coaching job, the responsibilities to the media and to the owners, and um, he loved the actual on field coaching, which where I think he was the best. So I think I think a head coach, um, uh, the the requirements of a head coach are slightly different from the requirements of just a skills coach or a yeah. defense coach. You need uh, you need a certain amount of leadership, and also you need a, a thicker skin. I think. 
Russ, any comments on that? Um, what makes a good coach? From all the people oh. we've spoken to in our podcast over the last few months. I think empathy. It's a big one now. Yeah. Um, more even, I think, than technical insight. Yeah. Would you say? Because, yeah. because what you lack in technical insight, you can recruit, but you can never... That's never right. recruit someone to empathize. No, I th I, when I was asked, I've been asked this question quite a few times. And I think, I think getting the uh, this whole word culture, getting the culture right in your team, you know, getting a happy, um, unselfish uh, 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 culture where people care for each other is, re and that stems from the behavior of the head coach right through his assistant coaches to the captain to the way the team is 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 led by the captain and by the coach is very important because if you get a happy team who trust each other, you can get some great results. And uh, so so going back, you've got to be technically knowledgeable, but you can get that information from, yeah. from a lot of people. So, But uh, the, the, the personality traits that you need of um, putting an arm around the right guy and, uh, and, and having a sharp word to another guy in the same day to get the best out of them, those are, are sort of emotional intelligence uh, requirements that not every single person has got, and and then and then you have to be able to motivate. You've got, so that is part of your motivation, and also um, and also leadership. You know, the guy's got to got to respect, and and also he's got to believe in what you're trying to say. And if you don't believe in what you're saying, you're not a good leader. So, yeah. so I think leadership, motivation, and technical, all probably 33 and a third percent. And when you look and at then, the signs within the team, are there certain signs within a team that you can say, that team is in good shape yeah, yeah. now because they do the following? Absolutely. absolutely. I always look to see how a team uh, works off the ball. So when, so when a player hasn't got the ball, what is he doing? And uh, particularly getting off the ground. So a guy's made a tackle, how quickly does he get off the ground, get back in the game? Uh, on defense and on attack. And um, if he's doing it in less than three seconds, that there's a big work ethic in that team and people think of, and, and the players have been told, um, you know, this is unselfish, you're back, you're helping your mates tackle, you're helping because you're another option on attack. If you're lying around, so the All Blacks, I think, have got a, a, a call for it, log statistic, lying on ground statistic, which is just hanging around, you've made your tackle, you lie there and you, and, and you watch what happens, uh, how the game unfolds. You know, then then you're not contributing. So, <clears throat> two areas of the game you can see where the team's happy: how they defend, and how they work without the ball. Yeah, yeah. What was the other one? It was log and big, big. back in game, back in game, back in yeah. game, and lying on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. heard those. Coaches love a good acronym, man. Eh? Yeah, England is reloaded for the same yeah. thing. I think it's Eddie's, Eddie Jones's term is reload. reload. How quickly do you get back up onto line? Yeah, and and uh, it takes a lot of work to take each each incident where a player because you can clean a ruck and be off your feet or you can be cleaned out of a ruck tackle and being tackled but you know they've got the they've got guys who sit in the back rooms they're going through every single one and i think the all blacks have 85 percent you've got to be 85 percent of your team have to be getting off the ground in less than three seconds otherwise you know they, there's an issue that player will be yellow carded you know okay the other the other thing about coaching that i've seen and read recently is that you get some coaches with a lifespan. There's a shelf yeah. life. Yeah. And that's that's theorized to be because the coach is so obsessive about doing everything exactly the right way that he has his thumb on those players all the time. And that's not sustainable. No. So what makes what makes a coach uh, what what adds to a coach's longevity in your view? I think you, uh, first of all you've got to adapt. Um, adapt it because situations change on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, you have injuries, you have guys going down sick, um, you have uh, uh, 
any sort of travel uh, problems. Uh, you have to be uh, adaptable and also you've got to always keep learning. You've got to keep, you never know everything, ever. There's always something that someone else knows uh, and does something better that you could learn from. So if you, if you think that you've got the template in 2000 and you can still coach in, 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 in 2019, you, 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 you're incorrect. It's not did you, when you were coaching, did you used to try and learn from outside the field or did you try and learn from other coaches within rugby? And did you have a deliberate strategy to do that? Or was no. it just absorbed because you were in the world yeah. and you were open to it? Yeah, I think that's more, that's more it. I, was, I, I talk about rugby a, a lot when I was coaching. Obviously, as I said, you are completely and utterly focused on trying to be successful. So any, any overseas, when I was living and playing in France, I'd speak to every Australian, every New Zealander who was over there. I learned from England what they were doing. They had a very good side in, 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 you know, with Wade Dooley and Eckford and, and uh, Rob Andrew in those days. They had an excellent team. And um, watching how the, how the French, how they counterattacked at that time and saw they used to practice counterattack. So you'd learn that. It was uh, just picking up all the time from as many different areas that, that you can. And then also um, learning about yourself because what worked in, uh, in 1995 or 1997 with Boerland, where I could go in and shout and they'd jump up you know, and they'd really perform, you know, it doesn't work with an international side in Italy uh, in, in, in 2011. So you've just got to keep on learning. And I think that's the most important. I think someone like Wayne Smith, um, he will always be a great coach because he's always thinking and he's always innovating and he's always trying new things. And that players love that, love that. You know, they don't want to be faced with the same thing every day. If you had to one uh, one piece of information that's probably not available now, if there was a bit of technology or science that they could develop about what you see on the field, what would you what do you think it would be that you can't get now? Now I think I think I think we've got everything we need from technology. You can get anything you want. I think the main the main um, empathy, that, that, that word that you just used, mm. um, to understand that, uh, that they're human beings, the players, and very different human beings. And the, and, the, and, the, and the real beauty of rugby is to get 15 very different individuals, um, all with different intellects, different physical shapes, uh, different uh, um, uh, attitude to, uh, to uh, aggression. Some guy is a center and he's... Uh, Cerebral, you know, he's a thinking player. You know, Conrad yeah. Smith, he doesn't think about smashing a ruck. He thinks about creating opportunities. And then you get a Bucky's Boerta who just wants to take out as many people as he can when he plays. <laughs> so, you know, you're getting all those guys and putting them on a field together and getting a, uh, getting that side to gel. There's nothing more exciting than that. Do you think the game now with all the changes and obviously the safety concerns about rugby and there's a lot of reasons why that's happening, is the game becoming a bit softer than it was in the day when you were playing? I don't think so. I, I think I think uh, it's counterbalanced. In our day, we weren't nearly as strong physically through gym and uh, the guys, the gym work. We most people just played rugby. You know, you were a big guy and you played rugby, and you did press ups and you ran up the mountain a couple of times at the beginning of the season to keep yourself to get into fit, to get yourself fit. But uh, the guys nowadays, I mean, uh, you know, an outside back if he takes his shirt off, you think you know he's cut like a like a yeah. you know bodyguard. You know, so so the guys are incredibly strong, probably 10, 15% more muscle mass than, than we had in our day. And also, uh, and through that, they've got a more, they're more impactful. They hit each other harder in terms of tackles and clean outs and rucks. And, uh, and so um, in, in our day, probably more violence. There were more fights, punches, kicks, um, uh, you know, more of that. 
off the ball incidents, which you can't get away with now in, in rugby nowadays, with uh, obviously with a lot of television, especially it's in the quite fun game. to watch the odd fight. Here well, well, that's <laughs> it. So in that way, a lot of the old people will say, well, it's softer because you you know you, if you, everyone's pushing each other yeah. in the past, you'd give a guy a good whack, you know, and and get a good whack if you got into the wrong place at the wrong time. Whereas whereas now, I mean, the the, the, the knocks you get in terms of, I mean, when you think of a Retallick hitting a uh, Etzebeth, or I mean, it, it is it is a it is very very, very powerful, and uh, not many people are physically capable of do, of doing that. <laughs> so it's a game now for big, strong, fast people, unfortunately. Yeah. So we're isolating the type of person who can play. Yeah, that's true, and that is a concern when you look at the yeah. physiques of the players. And we've got data on all the way back to 1999. Pl- players haven't gotten heavier, mm. but the body composition has changed. Mm. So the same mass is now made up of completely different things. And that's that's a big concern. Yeah, I just generally like don't like how safe and soft become in opposition with one another. You know. Yeah. So I know why you asked the question, but we we addressed that, and the sport has to become safer in the sense that it has to recognize and then reduce the risk as far as possible. But that doesn't make it soft. No. And I mean, I heard Gatland. Was it Gatland recently? You said that the collisions now it's like watching car accidents. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think no, he no, said, yeah. now when the coach of Wales, who's a tough, tough dude, mm. and they okay. are a tough side, exactly. when he's saying that, then you've got to maybe pay attention. It's not soft. No, it's incredibly, f- and, and also you must understand the ball in play is miles more than it used to be in our day. I mean, yeah. We'd have 17, 16 minutes of ball in play. You can get a game with 40 minutes of ball in play. So you play. I reckon that Japan could yeah. hit 50 in this World Cup because yeah. of the way they play the game. Yeah. So now. That's three times. Just explain more. ball in play. So when the when the when the between the time that the ball, the ref blows his whistle, so yeah. if he, he blows for a lineup, as the ball gets thrown in, you time how long that ball is played, played with, until yeah. he blows his whistle again. You okay. stop. So there was one game, four and a half minutes, Australia against New Zealand. Four and a half minutes. When was I think that? It was that was seven, in the seventies. Yeah, eh? no, 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 not four. And I'm not talking about only four and a half. I was saying one move oh, one was move. four and a half minutes. Exactly. So one move was four and a half minutes, and, wow. and and I think it was something like forty-four um, minutes of of ball in play time. I mean, it's 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 like playing in our day, playing two games of rugby. Because yeah. ours were, as I said, 17 to 20 minutes of ball in play. When I first went over to coach Italy, I, I took a look at and I timed the ball in play of one of their club games. It was 16 minutes. And you'd have to take a guy out of that club game, pick him for a, a Six Nations game. And you were playing England where England, France, the ball in play was over 40 minutes. I mean, the, it, the guy wasn't capable of playing more than, a, than one half. Physically, so for the fans, it's good because you're getting to watch more rugby and well, good rugby. Exactly, but for well, the players, it, so, there's a more there's more impact. Yeah. So just on that 1987 World Cup, 26 minutes 13 seconds yeah. average ball in play. Yeah. So in an 80 minute match, about a third of it is actually active. Uh, the rest of it is the time taken to throw the ball in, to set yeah. the scrum, to kick off after a try, yeah. and whatever else it is. We're now up in 20. 18 season, 39 minutes, 14. Yeah, there you go. And this World Cup will probably go over 40. So that's, a, what's that, 14 on 26. So yeah. that's a 50% increase wow. in exposure to the tackle, the just, rack, the yeah. more, whatever it is. Of course it's So harder. just explain why. Why are we seeing more game time? Well, because New Zealand, New Zealand, um, uh, the skill level of a New Zealand team is such that they believe that the harder they work, and the more they keep the ball, the quicker they'll, they'll tie their opposition down. Once you tie opposition down, 
you create space and you have more opportunities uh, then to score tries. So they work on the principle that you start playing quickly right from the first minute of the game to try and tire the opposition. Now, yeah. what arguably uh, bringing um, impact players or bringing uh, reserves on has negated this. In the past, it used to take 60 minutes for a prop to dominate his prop. And then in the last 20 minutes, you know, he got real payback time for the hard work he'd put in. Now you just get another prop comes on, a fresh prop, and he yeah. has to get substituted. So, I mean, the, this, the, the um, game has changed hugely. But uh, from 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 a playing perspective, and also from a viewing perspective, it's a much sure. much more exciting and more. There's more action now than there ever was in 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 the 1980s. And if you go back and you watch a 1980s clip, you won't even believe it's the same game. Watch a lineout; it's yeah. an absolute shambles. Yeah. You cannot believe it. Just a melee of people. <laughs> so here's here's some others. 1987, <coughs> 49 lineouts a match. Yeah. 2018, 24. Yeah. So that's almost that's half. Yeah. 32 scrums a match in the 80s. 14 today. There you go. Wow. 67 kicks, 43 now. Yeah. So the emphasis of what teams are trying to do has changed in a direction that keeps the ball on the field and alive. So in the 1980s, when a scrum happened, okay, they used to set those scrums unbelievably quickly, yeah. but the, the three three out of four would collapse, the ball wouldn't come out, they'd do it again yeah. and again. Now it's get the game started, let's have more ball. There's, a, there's now a timing limit on penalties and conversions. And so, so like we, get back yeah. to the halfway line, let's start the game, don't waste time. Exactly. Now you're talking about is the game softer? It's not. It's a, it's a really hard game now. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I can't tell you how tired you must get. In fact, now... Uh, players defend in zones. They don't in the past. There was just, there was a comment, you know, you want the pack to be covered by a blanket when they wrecked over a scrum. I mean, now you you know you yeah. distribute it across the field, and players have you know 15 meter zones that they'll be defending in, so that and they don't get tired defending because they only go up and down the field, never moving laterally, and uh, mm. and and they do that in attack as well because otherwise you wouldn't be able to play. I mean, yeah. someone like Richie McCaw had a had a heart rate monitor and a and a. Um, uh, one of those um, distance monitors on his jersey in a game. He ran 15 kilometers God. in a game at 75% of his, he was 75% of his time he was going at his top rate. Wow, that's amazing. So he's sprinting, sprinting so he's, yeah. to a breakdown, sprinting. Mm. His heart was, and they took his heart rate. So, so know, these guys are fit. Unbelievably fit. Yeah. And, I mean, just and, to, and yeah. how many more tackles? So oh, just yeah. simply with this 40 minutes in play, you can imagine that you're doubling the, the amount of ta of, yeah. of, of Impact Ooh. situations, which would be making a tackle or getting tackled. Double. I mean, 1987, 60 rucks and malls a match. So that's about 65 tackles. Yeah. 2018, 211. <laughs> so it's <laughs> almost fourfold. Yeah. I mean, and okay, that's over 30 years. But even since 1995, when we won, 90 a match compared yeah. to 200 now. So exactly. the demands on players. And then one last one before I get over the numbers is in the 1980s and 90s, 1% of all movements. So in other words, let's say from the time the ball is thrown in at a lineout until it goes dead again, knock on another lineout, 1% lasted more than a minute. It's now 20%. Yeah. So one in five moves lasts for more than a minute. So the physiological demand of rugby is completely different today to what it was 20 so years So sorry, Nas, Burton, Murray, Maxted, but actually the <laughs> players today are tougher than you were. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> oh, they're, they're certainly fitter. They're certainly fitter and they're more muscular and mm. they're more explosive. Mm. I mean, you you just have to be, and um, and the training reflects that. I yeah. mean, the guys will do three or four gym sessions a week, and they'll also do f uh, speed and agility, and um, and they do a lot of impact. You know, they get to make get their body used to uh, you know to, to contact. In fact, one of the worrying things, uh, one of the worrying things is the is the injury rate at practicing. 
because mm. you're trying for, for say 20 minutes, you try and do a real life situation to see how the guys do and you injure a player in that. I mean, that is, that's, we've really got to be careful about yeah. that in rugby. And 80, 80 to 85% of your rugby load is training load. Yes. And, you know, like you play an hour and 20 minutes, but you train six yeah. in a week. Yeah. So a third of all injuries happen in training because, yeah, it's a dilemma for the coach. How do you replicate a match and get him ready without exposing him to risk? You can't really do it. So that is a big issue. So let's, uh, as a final question, kind of put our crystal balls in front of us and say, like, if you look at cricket, they're doing things like the shorter version of the game. There's a 100-ball cricket coming up in the England season in the next, in next year. Just if you had to say where rugby must go, is there a shorter version available? Is the game still going to remain the same? Where do you see the game going in the next 10 years? Law changes you'd make? Law yeah, changes, yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, the three law changes I've, I've proposed, which uh, which haven't been accepted, unfortunately, <laughs> is uh, is that I, I look at the scrum as a, as, a, as, a, as a bit of a bane on the game because you see resets. You take 10, 13, 14 minutes out of a game in terms of scrummaging. And uh, it's an important aspect of the game, but as a restart. So uh, in li a line-out's a restart, a kickoff's a restart, and a scrum is a restart. How and, do you change that? Well, then you don't... Uh, see, scrum is the only area where you get a penalty given for a technical offence. And uh, I think that you should get a free kick. And if you got a free kick, you'd take the double shove out of the game, which would take also collapsed scrums and also injury, neck injuries to props. So um, teams double shove if they're dominant to get the penalty because it's such a weapon to kick into the corner. You have your own throw in on the line out and you, dom you, know, you dominate territory. It's a great exit strategy. And if you've got to take the double shove out of rugby because it's a restart, you, uh, opposition knocked it on. Mm. So therefore you have the right to have it and you have it through a scrum and you've got eight of the opposition tied into a scrum. So it's a great attacking situation. It's not a situation for a double shove. So take away the direct penalty and turn it into a free kick. And the opposition can't, the, the guy, the team that gets the free kick can't take a scrum, can't choose a scrum. They've got to tap and go. The second one would be you can mark the ball anywhere on the field in the air and you can have a scrum where the guy kicked it. So, so, it's, not, so it's not just in your 22. In your 22, you can't have a scrum. You've got to kick it out. But why? It, because why? you want to stop box kicks. These, these interminable box kicks. When a team's in his 22, they set up two driving malls. And then a, a guy you know, everyone knows on the field. I mean, he's, he's put up a barrier of three forwards to stop himself getting charged down. He's got his one leg back. His one leg forward. He's in that, in that uh, pre-kick position. And, uh, and it's just not... An, it's just not part of the game and you get uh, it is part of the game but unfortunately they should come with a risk that if you don't win the ball in the air the opposition win it they get a scrum back from where that guy kicked it which will make kicking much more intelligent yeah. it means you have to play a few phases and hit grass and the third one would be um, you can sack a driving mall uh, because uh, I don't believe that there's an injury it's such a static thing a driving mall that uh, and it's in my view still legalized obstruction so if you are allowed to sack it, force the opposition to spin out of it and play and run with it instead of, you know, move it to the back and then um, shift lanes and it, it becomes a mess. And, and I do believe it's obstruction. So, so I think those three would improve rugby. And I also think that we need to get um, uh, more teams competitive. I think we've increased the, the competitiveness from four to eight. And it'd be great if we can get it to 16. Yeah. Ross, Ross, final comments? I can't disagree. The thing about those law changes is that Nick, Nick will know this yeah. well from yeah. his time with World Rugby is that <clears throat> when you then put those forward, people say, well, how does this affect me? 
And half the teams Quite in the true. world want the driving more and the other half don't. And so if it ever comes down to a vote, it hangs itself every time <laughs> because effectively you're asking half the turkeys to vote for Christmas yep. and they never will. <laughs> so that's why these things never really happen because everyone's got different. And one of the beauties of rugby is that there are so many ways to play it. I know right. when Nick was with Italy, yep. you had to adapt the way you played against New Zealand because if there was only one way to play it, you'd get hammered. hammered. So therefore you say, what are my strengths? What can we do? What should we do? And so then you go to a game that the week before you might not have even considered. So the game is so versatile, but it makes it complicated to make changes. Nick, final question. Who's your favorite for the World Cup? Pick four semis at least. Pick four semis, there we go. Four semifinalists and give us the winner. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'd, go, I'd go New Zealand, South Africa, England and Wales semis. Yeah. And I'm... Obviously, hoping New Zealand and South Africa, and I think uh, we we should. We, funny enough, I think if we can avoid England, England's a dangerous. I, I know other people have gone Ireland and Wales, but I think England's a very dangerous side in this World Cup. Nick Mallets, Professor Ross Tucker, thank you very much for your time. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.